Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Verse 19 to the end. Now we know that what things soever the law saith is saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seen it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, as we speak in these moments with the help and by the grace of thy Holy Spirit of that grand doctrine of which Martin Luther said, the church stands or falls with it, and so do we as individuals. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, help us to expound these verses in a way that does justice, some stammering justice to this grand and glorious doctrine. O oh God, be in our midst in these moments and let thy kingdom come. Let saints be grounded afresh and come to appreciate the doctrine of justification more than ever before, and let the unsaved be saved and find all their hope in a justifying God through the justifying blood of his only begotten Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Justified man. Seems like an oxymoron after what we heard yesterday about man's depravity, about the extent, the magnitude of our sin, the rediscovery of this glorious doctrine, justified man, shook Europe in the 16th century. Just when Satan was hovering over Europe and saying, Europe is mine, God, by his spirit, through astonishing light in the heart of Martin Luther, opened up the gospel in its biblical purity in justification by faith alone. The last 20, 30 years, this doctrine has been under attack again, as you well know. It is such a precious doctrine. We need to preach it again and again and again. Because this doctrine, first of all, lies at the heart of the gospel not only, but it is the gospel. Without justification by faith alone, there is no gospel. But second, justification by faith alone is that doctrine that corrects a host of errors. It refutes the new perspective of Paul. It refutes federal theology and a host of other errors that have come on the scene in the last decades. And nearly every heresy in church history stems from a misunderstanding of justification by faith alone. It's also a great incentive to a revived church. Wherever there has been revival in church history, there has been a revival of this doctrine justified man. The wonder of this has gripped people in revival. Then too, justification is important because it answers a great variety of problems, pastoral problems, such as lack of assurance of faith, inability to handle trials Christianly, and so many other doctrines. We'll see a few of them this morning. And finally, justification is so important to preach because it is still poorly understood in Christian circles. Some years ago, you may remember, Michael Horton did a survey of evangelicals in America and concluded that 85% don't, do not have a clear understanding that justification by faith alone involves both the forgiveness of sins and the right to eternal life through the double obedience of Jesus in his passive obedience, washing away our sins, in his active obedience, granting us a right to eternal life. 85% of evangelicals not understanding the very most basic doctrine of the Christian faith for our salvation. And so many of us can go astray in living the Christian life by not understanding this doctrine or by taking this doctrine for granted. Today, often we take the most sacred things for granted. It's true of this doctrine as well. Sometimes you hear Christians say, well, I want to go beyond justification. Well, I've got good news for you, friend. There's nothing beyond it. It's the highest, the grandest, the glorious doctrine 
because it leads us to adoption of children. It leads us to faith in Christ alone. The whole of the Christian life is nothing but an ongoing discovery of both the glory and the power of justification. This is the Christian foundation. This is the higher thing in the Christian life. And so we have an opportunity this morning, once more, to set this glorious doctrine before you. And I want to read just again verse 25, or verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So looking at justified men this morning, I want to look at four thoughts. First, it is by God's grace alone. Second, it is in Christ alone. Third, it is through faith alone. And fourth, it is for God's glory alone. And we'll unpack this, God helping us, from Romans 3, the portion I read to you. Now, first of all then, justification is by grace alone. Why can we not be justified by any other way except the sheer unmitigated grace of God to which we can contribute absolutely nothing? Well, Paul's been spending three chapters telling us why. Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, he concludes that Every mouth must be stopped, 319. And all the world become guilty before God. That means you and me. And then verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So God, Paul begins to unpack his glorious doctrine of justification by three preceding chapters in which he talks about the enormity of our sin, how tragic our sin is against a well-doing God. And he unpacks it in such a way that indeed, as Jonathan Edwards said in his great famous sermon on, on 319, that every single mouth may be shut and that the heart of man may become guilty before God. We have broken the sacred moral law that reflects the moral character, the very heart of a righteous, inflexibly just God. So Paul is saying in Romans 1 through 3, whoever we are, we stand guilty before an all-consuming God. We're sinners, the kind of sinners we heard about last night. And so the Ten Commandments, the essence of the moral law, condemn us. We've sinned against every one of those commandments thousands of times. Every moment we don't love God above all. Every moment we don't love our neighbors ourselves, which by nature is all the time. We are always sinning. Sinning second by second by second either by commission or by omission. We are just piling up our sins one after another before the sight of a holy, righteous God who cannot allow anyone in heaven with one unforgiven sin. 
He's too holy. And we're too unholy to be justified by the law. And so Paul belabors the point here over and over again. Without the law, or or by the law, no man is justified. And yet, when the books are open on the great day, not only the gospel will be the touchstone, but also the law. And so the great question becomes, how can a man be just with God when he's a lawbreaker? And that law is inflexible, and God is immutable. You see, the whole point of Paul, the whole point of Paul here in the first three chapters is to teach us that justification presupposes a prior status of condemnation. In other words, that to be truly aware of my justification in Christ alone, to truly embrace it and know it, I must know something of the magnitude of my sin. I must know that I deserve condemnation, experientially, in my own soul. And that is absolutely critical. You remember the famous book written by Anselm, Why Did God Have to Become Man? Why God Man? And you recall that Anselm is the wise pastor counselor in his own book, which was common in those days. And they would write books with a, a counselee or a young disciple, and there would, it would be in a dialogue, a Q&A, and a, a running dialogue between the beginner in grace and the wise pastor. And so in this book, The consulee is called Bozo, which sounds like he has a lot to learn. And Bozo is asking questions, and Anselm is responding, and they're going back and forth, and they're talking about the gospel. And finally, Anselm gets very frustrated with Bozo. When Bozo keeps questioning why we have to be saved only by the blood, the justifying blood of Jesus And Anselm turns to Bozo in the book and says, Bozo, your problem is this. You have not yet considered the greatness of the weight of your sin. The Puritans used to say, small views of sin, small apprehensions of Christ. To understand the magnitude of justification We need to understand the magnitude of our deserved condemnation. We can be saved only, only, only by grace alone. And Paul summarizes all of that, doesn't he? In in verse 23, when he says, we have all fallen short, we have all sinned not only, but we have all fallen short by that sin of the glory of God. Of God. You see, the real tragedy about sin is not simply what it does to my inner spirit. The real tragedy with my sinfulness is what it has done to me for the destiny for which I was created. Through sin, 
I have fallen short of the entire purpose of why God made me, namely to glorify him. I have come short of the glory of God. I've robbed God of his glory. I besmirched him of his glory. I've forgotten by nature who I was meant to be. We were created, friends, to be choristers in a great choir of praise as we live out our lives for God, in God, and through his power and for his praise. But instead, instead, we have believed the lie instead of the truth. We have besmirched the glory of God. We have fallen short of that glory. And having lost the view of that glory, we are in a tragic condition. We have Ichabod, Ichabod, written across our lives. The glory of God has departed from us. We decay, we grow dim and poor and weak, and then we die. And apart from grace, there are no resources in us ever to be saved. We're alienated from God. Three chapters Paul spends convincing us of our dire need for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what we need, grace through Jesus alone. Forever going to be saved, Paul is saying. It's got to come from beyond us, or as Luther calls it, it's got to come from an alien righteousness outside of me. It's got to come from Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So when we think justified man, the first thing you should think is, this presupposes a prior status of condemnation. We need Christ. That's it. You've got to know your need for Jesus. Which leads us to my second thought, justification in Christ alone. In Christ alone. He goes on to say in verses 24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace, grace alone, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So we're justified freely, freely, freely to us, not freely to Christ. <laughs> he had to pay with his life, but freely by his grace. Freely is a word here that also indicates liberally, abundantly, overflowingly. You see, God isn't a God who forgives sinners reluctantly. He justifies sinners freely, but through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There's no possibility of these two words being brought together, justified man, apart from redemption propitiation, substitutionary atonement in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's marvelous, isn't it, to notice how this wonder, this wonder 
of redemption in Christ impacts even the language Paul uses. God is the subject of the verbs. It is God who provides the propitiation. It is God who provides a justification. It is God who is the justification through his son. And Paul says that's through a propitiatory sacrifice. Now, you, you're aware of these different words and their nuances, expiation, the cleansing of sin away, propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath and judgment. And Paul says that's what's lying at the heart. That's what's lying at the heart of our justification by grace. The wrath of God is turned away from us only because it's poured out upon his son and only because an infinite son, who's also God of God, an infinite son can only be the only one to please an infinite father, an infinite judge. You and I are just finite. Even if you could live perfectly from here all the way to the end of your life, you've besmirched the glory of God. Your life in God's sight is a train wreck apart from Jesus. There's no hope. You must be saved by Christ alone. The wrath of God can only be turned away through the propitiation of Jesus' blood. It's like the mercy seat in the Old Testament. It's as though Paul is saying that just as in the Old Testament, the place where justification might be found by an Old Testament sinner was the place where the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice was sprinkled in the presence of God Almighty in His holiness. So the real New Testament place of the ultimate forgiveness of our sins can only be found at the New Testament mercy seat, which is the cross of Calvary, where Jesus has given his blood to which all the blood of bulls and goats and turtle doves through all the thousands of years was pointing. And that's why when he gave that blood completely and poured out his life and drank the bottom of the cup of the dregs of his father's wrath, as soon as it was, it was drunk completely, he could cry out, it is finished, to tell us die, one word, no word ever said in church history contains so much as that word. And in that one word, immediately, the Father reaches down with his holy judicial hands and rips the temple veil in twain from top to bottom. And all the Old Testament ceremonies are done. The blood, the blood has been shed. The satisfaction has been made. We are justified in Jesus Christ alone. So the only way, the only way our sin can be dealt with is by the agony and bloody sweat of Jesus taking our death into the grave, tasting death for us, entering the lake of fire in its essence for us, going into the bottomless pit for us as our substitute, in our place as our head, suffering the wrath of a sin-hating God against us the holy revulsion of a God who cannot look upon sin is now focused upon Calvary where Jesus hangs in the naked flame of his holiness because he's bearing your sin, dear believer, my sin, wounded for our transgressions. What an incredible gospel this is. Today, if you go to Israel, 
the place where supposedly Jesus died. I've been there several times. It's quite peaceful. It's uh, just a little bit touristy. It's clean. It's sanitized. It's humbling to be there. But you need to remember, it's not what it looked like in Jesus' day. There were skulls laying around. There, there was bones and putrid flesh scattered about. There were three crosses, dingy and bloodstained, supporting three naked bodies, ghastly and bloodstained too, all in keeping with the surroundings. And there, every insult, every insult is heaped on Jesus. The soldiers, the spectators, the priests, the elders in their holy robes of office, they're all focused on him. And the only voice that stands up for him is the voice of a despicable thief, soon to die. The pure-minded women are silent. The disciples who loved him are coward and terrified, are far away. No one catches his eye and through a glance shows how much they understand and know why he is hanging there. He's an alien from his father's house. His friends and his brethren have forsaken his fellowship. He's forsaken of men. He's forsaken even of his God. He's forsaken of heaven and of earth and of hell. And even of nature, the sun is dark and will not shine upon him. The face of the Father that is always turned in love and adoration to his only begotten Son seems to be absent now. This, this is what God thinks of your sin and my sin, your depravity, my depravity. You see, sin is awesome in the face of Sinai's thunder and lightning, but sin is most bitter in the face of the red glass of Christ's suffering. The bridegroom has taken all the liabilities of his bride to himself. He's paying the wages of sin for her down to the bottom bitter last drop. He's abandoned. He's abandoned to the cruel hands of the most merciless men on the planet, even the very sun will not shine upon him. The unclean place, the passions of the mob, the sufferings of the soul, the coldness of God. That, my friend, is what God thinks of sin. But that's also the gospel. Jesus in my place. Jesus enduring the magnitude of my sin that I could never begin to endure. Jonathan Edwards said it so well, no finite creature could ever satisfy an infinite God. But now, an infinite God-man satisfies an infinite God. Which leaves Martin Luther to say, after spending three hours on his knees trying to understand it, and then arising and saying, God forsaken of God, who can understand it? That he gave his son. I've got one son. I wouldn't give him to any of you. And you're my friend. But God gave his son. Think about that. For the kind of enemy and rebel that you and I have been toward him by nature. So justification Justification not only presupposes a prior status of condemnation. Justification is a gracious forensic declaration 
by God. It's a legal term. It means that God the Father, on the throne room of his justice, for the sake of his Son, when everything rises up against me in the courtroom of my own conscience, and the law condemns me, my sins condemn me, and, and Satan condemns me, that Jesus stands up and says, Father, deliver this sinner from going down into the pit, for I have found a ransom. And the Father declares you free on the basis of the bloody sacrifice of his only begotten Son. What an amazing thing this is. Justified man. But then thirdly, Justification doesn't only presuppose a prior status of condemnation and a gracious forensic declaration by God, but also it involves this forgiveness of guilt and freedom from condemnation because of Christ alone, so that even though we still battle with sin, even though we are simul justus et peccator, we are at the same time forgiven and yet struggling with sin, O wretched man that I am, indwelling sin, Christ covers it all. He forgives even indwelling sin. He forgives past and present and future sin through his perfect passion, his perfect passio, suffering obedience. But fourthly, justification also involves a judicial reckoning of faithful obedience to God's law by Christ's active obedience. You see, to have my sins wiped away in justification is a wonderful thing. It's a glorious benefit through the passive obedience of Jesus. But that doesn't give me a right to eternal life. To get a right to eternal life, I need to be perfectly obedient in God's sight. I need to have perfectly loved God above all and love my neighbor as myself without one sin. I cannot enter into heaven with one unforgiven sin. And you see, Jesus did that as well. Jesus did two things for us that must be done for us that we could never do for ourselves. The first is what, I, what we just talked about, is suffering and dying bringing infinite satisfaction, paying for sin, wiping away our sin. But he also had to come for 33 years, love God above all every second of those 33 years, love his neighbors himself every second of those 33 years, so that when I, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, believe in Christ alone for salvation, his double obedience, as Calvin put it, his passive obedience to pay for my sins, his active obedience to obey the law for me, that double obedience is imputed to my conscience. And my sins are imputed to Jesus. And I am set free. So that when the Father looks upon me, it's just like David looking down upon Mephibosheth who expected to die because he had the wrong bloodline running through his veins. And instead of death, Mephibosheth laying there on the ground, hears these words, fear not, Mephibosheth, for I have made a covenant with Jonathan. For Jonathan's sake, I will set you free not only, but you will come and you will be like an adopted son. You will eat bread at my table always. 
And so God the Father, from his judgment throne, looks down upon a poor, needy sinner like you and me who absolutely deserve death every single day of our lives. And he says, sinner, fear not. For Jesus' sake, my son's sake, I've made a covenant. And he's paid the price of your death. I am setting you free. And I'm adopting you into my family. I'm not just a judge to pronounce you free. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to come down. I'm going to put my arm around you. And I'm saying, come home with me. Come home with me into the house of God. Come home with me into the means of grace. And I will be a father to you. And you will be my son. Justification sets me entirely free. It adopts me into the family of God. So there's a negative element. There's a positive element to justification. The negative element wipes away my sin. The positive element, you see, receives me graciously into the adopted family of God. But all of this, all of this is what? By faith alone, says Paul, five or six times in a row. Listen to this. That's my third point. This righteousness comes through faith unto all and upon all them that believe. Verse 22. Verse 25. Christ is a propitiatory sacrifice through faith. Verse 26. God is the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 27. On what principle is boasting excluded? On the principle of faith. Verse 28. We conclude a man is justified by faith. Five times in a row. In case you didn't get it the first, second, or third time. Paul repeats it five times in a row. There's only one way you can be saved. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. But why? Why, why by faith? Three quick reasons. Number one, it's the only way we can get into Christ, according to Pauline New Testament language. You can't be united to Christ. You can't believe into Christ without faith. New Testament language speaks about believing into Christ through faith. A faith that's saving brings me into union and out of that union into communion with Jesus so that I'm so united to him that there may, it may be said that there's a sense in which the presence of Almighty God is so in me by the grace of God that I am before him as a righteous one, as if I had never sinned because I am in Christ. He's my head. I'm in him. His, his righteousness is imputed to me by faith. Second, justification is by faith because it's God's plan in saving us to engage us personally to Jesus Christ in such a way that our bonding of ourselves to Jesus contributes nothing to our salvation. This is the genius of the gospel, inexpressible genius. The gospel does not bring salvation to us over our heads, but into our lives. Faith is by definition refusing to rely upon myself but relying entirely upon him. 
That's why Matthew Henry said, of all the graces of God in salvation, faith is the greatest because faith has only one object, which is Jesus. So faith, you see, is that by which I live. The just, that was the breakthrough for Luther. The just shall live by faith. But how does that faith operate then? Well, we're not justified by faith in our faith, but we're justified by faith in Christ. In Christ. You see, we're not justified because of what faith is in itself, but we're justified by faith because of what faith lays hold of, what faith receives, the righteousness of Christ. So we're not saved for believing. That's Arminianism, by the way. We're saved by believing. Faith is not a builder. Faith is a beholder. Faith has nothing to contribute to the process of justification. Nothing to achieve, but only to receive. Faith is a self-emptying grace. Faith is an empty hand. Faith is an instrument that receives the vessel that receives the divine gift proffered to us in the gospel. And so when I receive Christ by faith, I wholeheartedly assent to God's way of salvation. I surrender to the evangel. I fall into the hands of the outstretched arms of the God of gospel. My faith flees with all my soul's poverty to Christ's riches, with all the soul's guilt to Christ as reconciler, with all the soul's bondage to Christ as liberator. And I say with top lady, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So faith closes with Christ as the Puritans would say, and grasp Christ in a warm, believing embrace, surrendering all of self, clinging to his word, relying on his promises, reposing in the person of Christ, coming, hearing, seeing, trusting, taking, embracing, knowing, rejoicing, loving, triumphing. In a way, these are all synonyms of just coming to Christ. Faith, says Luther, clasped. Christ as a ring clasps its diamond. Faith wraps the soul in Christ's righteousness. And then faith lives out of that Christ. Faith exclaims, Christ is all and in all. He's my only object. He's my only expectation. He's my total salvation. Faith commits the total person to the total person of Jesus. And then, one more thing. This is all done, Paul says, for the glory of God. Because God gets glorified in the demonstration of this justice. Verse 26, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and he might be the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Soli Deo Gloria. And he goes on to say in verse 27, something very powerful. Where is boasting then? Well, you can't get boasting in the law because you can't be justified by the law. Well, then are you going to boast in your faith? No, because faith looks totally to Jesus. By the law of faith, there's no boasting in faith because of the very nature of faith. It's all dependent on God's grace through the blood of Christ. 
So Paul says boasting is silenced on the principle of faith, which means God gets all the glory. In my place condemned, Jesus stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. And faith in taking him says, hallelujah, what a Savior. So let me close with this. Justification means a lot of things to us as a Christian. First of all, it means peace with God. The doing and the dying of Jesus is the only criteria for my acceptance with God. Secondly, justification establishes my identity. If I'm justified in Christ, that's who I am. I'm a born-again Christian justified in Christ, and that defines my very existence. That preaches to me. Reckon yourself dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I am therefore to live wholly and solely to him. Third, justification. Paul says, gives me access by faith to the Father into this grace wherein we stand. And access here is a rare Greek word that means entrance to the king through the favor of another. I stand in bold confidence, in bold confidence. I stand with assurance of salvation through justification, ratified, sealed to my conscience by the Holy Spirit. I stand with a hope that my person and even my works, even though they fall short, but flowing out of God's grace, are now acceptable and pleasing to God, and that he receives my obedient worship and my prayers with a father's delight. Oh, what a joy, justification, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, to the glory of God alone, is for my soul. And then too, justification helps us assess our trials properly. If we're justified, all my trials come upon me, not judicially or punitively, but they come upon me from the hand of my Father to sanctify me, to do me good. And then by justification, by faith alone, I quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, including Satan. And I say to Satan like Luther did, you have no business being with me. I am in Christ. I am in Christ. Be gone, Satan. Be gone, sin. I'm a Christian. I have no business sinning. I will live wholly and solely for my God. And justification is the cutting edge of our evangelistic message. It's the good news, the only thing we have to communicate that can reach dead, dry bones, that they can stand up and live out of justification by faith alone. And finally, justified man means it's the only way for me to die peacefully. Paul said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God of God. John Brown of Haddington, that famous divine, his last two words were, my Christ. And he died with his hands uplifted. My 
Christ. It's all you need, my friend. My only comfort in life and death is that I don't belong to myself, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love the deathbed of Professor David Dixon, another uh, relatively unknown but should be well-known Puritan who wrote a wonderful commentary in the Psalms. On his deathbed, just before he died, his friends asked him what he was thinking, and he said this, I've taken all my bad deeds and I've put them on one heap, and I've taken all my good deeds as well and I've put them on the same heap, and I've run away from that heap into the arms of Jesus, so I die with peace. That's the way to live. That's the way to die. That's the way to spend all eternity justified man through the Lord Jesus Christ. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Gracious God, please bless this short address on justification by faith alone and let us be justified men and women, pastors and lay people, teenagers, boys and girls who put all our trust by the grace of the Holy Spirit in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.